So our reading this morning is going to be out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Let me kind of tell you where this this picks up, because you might notice that it kind of picks up in the middle of things. John is at the Jordan River baptizing. He is John the Baptist, after all, and that's kind kind of what he did there. But he's at the Jordan River, and he has just finished proclaiming the, new, the good news of the gospel, the, the fact that the Messiah is coming, the one who he says is even un, he, is, he is unworthy to even buckle the strap on the Messiah's sandals. And also promising that even though he, John the Baptist, baptizes with water, the one is coming who will baptize with fire. Little did John know, or at least I assume he didn't know, based on, just based on what I read here, little did he know the Messiah was literally coming very soon, like right now. And that's where we pick up at verse 13. So hear these words now. When Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, or then Jesus went, to the, went, to, went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. And this, my friends, is the word of God for us and for all of God's people. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your word that we can learn from even all these years after it was written. God, we ask you to minister to us now through the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand what it means to live out these words today, the the meaning of baptism, and even, yes, the danger of baptism. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and redeemer. To the glory of God the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, yes, my friends, you heard me correctly. Baptism is dangerous. Baptism can even be very dangerous. And if you've ever been to the Jordan River, have any of you ever gone to the Jordan River? Well, I haven't either. That is, as they say on my bucket list, it's something I hope to do someday while I'm still on this planet. So up to this point anyway, I can only take people's word for it. The Jordan River is kind of a dangerous place because it is heavily polluted. There was a researcher who wrote an article about the Jordan River who described it like this, or he he put it this way. He said, if you were to get in the water and you had a cut, you would probably develop a rash that will require medical treatment. So the moral of the story is that if you're going to get in the Jordan River to be baptized or to remember your baptism or whatever, make sure you don't have any open cuts. That's what he's, what he's saying there because it's so dirty. He also reports a very foul scent 
that the Jordan River has. He didn't describe it. I probably don't want to know. It probably probably just suffice it to say it stinks. But yet, in spite of all of this, thousands of people every year who make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, part of that tour, and inevitably every tour of the Holy Land I've ever read about, includes a stop at the Jordan River, and inevitably the people on the tour, at least most of them, are going to want to get into the water and either be baptized or have some sort of remembrance of their baptism. And of course, it's, it's understandable since those are the waters in which Jesus was baptized, in which so many other people from, uh, that we read about in the Bible were undoubtedly baptized as well. So there's that temporal danger that can come with baptism. If you do it in a, in a polluted body of water, you're going to face those kinds of dangers. But you know, there's also a spiritual danger that comes with baptism. Have you ever really thought about thought about that? Have you thought about what the true meaning of baptism is, the fact that it's nothing short of accepting a mission, that you are in fact taking on a new life and a new identity? And this is true at whatever point the baptism takes place. If you're a baby, if you're a young child, if you're an adult, teenager, whatever. And it doesn't matter if you're sprinkled, dunked, poured upon, or whatever. And it doesn't matter if the water came from a river like the Chickasahay River, which is where the first baptism I ever did took place, or the Jordan River, or the tap out of the kitchen. None of that matters because ultimately what we're doing in our baptisms is we're being marked as one of God's own. We're being marked as a disciple. We're being marked as one of God's most beloved children. And my friends, again, this is a very scary thing if you think about it. And yes, it does present an air of danger. So it's helpful to know what it is we're signing up for. What is this thing that we're actually doing? Well, we could be like so many of our brothers and sisters across the world. We could be taking on the danger of even persecution. And we've all heard countless stories of disciples being being truly persecuted for their, uh, for their beliefs and for their work for God, for their even being a, a Christian, for merely believing in God. Now, we don't have this so much in this country. We don't have a lot of what could be considered true persecution. You know, And when I talk about persecution, I mean the threat of being jailed for simply being a Christian or being threatened with death by the government for just being a Christian. There's a lot of other countries where Christians don't have those assurances. Places like Germany, or not Germany, but China. Places like North Korea. Several countries in the Middle East. I mean, I could, the list goes on and on. So that is one danger that does exist. And Jesus even promised that those of us who put on Christ, who put on the faith, would indeed endure persecution. So while being a Christ follower, at least in countries like the United States and other countries where we do have relative freedom, being a Christ follower is not always going to be a clear and present danger in the physical sense. But regardless of that, we do face some other dangers. Or at least I use that in a loose term, or at least in a spiritual sense. Because being baptized can really challenge us in ways that maybe we are not really even aware of, things that we've not considered. 
We can disagree about how to baptize and when to baptize and even who to baptize. But the reality is, again, that we are marked as one of God's very own. We are marked by the present the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are there in the midst of our baptisms. And we are proclaiming to the world, and again, at whatever point it takes place, that we are made in God's image. But we're also taking on a job responsibility. You ever thought about that? By being baptized, we're taking on a vocation that involves stewardship and care of one another as well as God's creation. Like Jesus, we are exposed to some dangers. Because you know what Jesus got at the, right after his baptism took place? If you read ahead a little past where I read today, you're going to be reminded of what happened just after Jesus was baptized. He found himself in the middle of the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water, no con- or at least assuming, assumingly so, no contact with anyone besides the devil himself. So that was the result of, at least the initial result of Jesus' baptism. That's what he got for going to the waters of the Jordan River. He got an up-close and personal encounter with the devil. Much could be the same for us. And since our baptisms mark us as being one of Jesus' own, we're prone to the same type of dangers. But think about this too. Whether it's done sprinkling, pouring, immersion, whatever, when we are baptized, we're doing nothing short than of putting on Christ himself. Think about that. We're putting on Christ's image. We're putting on Christ ourselves through the waters of baptism. And that's a big deal. And that's something we should take pretty seriously. Throughout high school, I was the manager for several sports teams. I wasn't a good athlete. I wasn't, you know, really gifted in those areas, but I did want to be involved. So I was the equipment manager or the stat keeper or, the, or whatever needed to be done in the moment. I was just a general helper. A couple, couple of those years were spent um, being part of the football team as a manager at Philadelphia High School. And even though that me and the other managers, we weren't position players, we weren't the quarterbacks or the running backs or linebackers or whatever, we still were allowed to take, take part in the Friday tradition of wearing a game jersey to school. We were still able to partake in that, and, and, and I looked forward to it. I really enjoyed that part, of the, that part of the job, if you will. At that time, the head football coach at Philadelphia High School was an imposing man named Herschel Smith. Now, when I say imposing, Coach Smith looked like a man that you just did not want to make your enemy. I'll put it this way. He was the head coach at Philadelphia in 1992 when they won the state 2A championship. And he wore a championship ring. And his fingers were so big, therefore his ring was so big, you could fit a quarter through it. I saw this myself. Kid you not. Big man. So again, if he said something, you knew it was in your best interest to listen to Coach Smith. But the ni- one of the nicest men even to this day that I've ever met, so 
you know, don't think he was, he was mean, but he did mean business. He had some rules for when we wore our jerseys to school. The first rule was, three simple rules. The first rule was, it had to be tucked in. Period, full stop, end of story. See, this was after they went to the jerseys that were a little longer. So he said, you had to tuck them in. That was not negotiable. All right, got that covered. Rule number two was he preferred you to wear khakis, but you had to at least wear a nice pair of jeans. No holes, no rips, no sagging, none of that. You had to be dressed properly. Few people broke that rule, and they were not happy with him once he got done with them. I'll just put it that way. Rule number three, probably the most important rule, even after, even above the shirts being tucked in and wearing some nice, decent-looking pants with them. Don't do anything stupid while you're wearing it. That was his most ironclad rule. And I saw the result of what would happen more than once if somebody did something stupid while wearing their jersey to school on Friday. I won't get into those stories either. You probably don't want to know. But anyway, he did make it very clear, though, that when you put on a jersey that said Philly on the front, and whether it was our white jerseys for away games or our black or red jerseys for home games, it didn't matter. We were wearing the school colors. We were representing the school. We were representing him, our community, and our families. And we were expected to look good and act decent and to do anything that brought disgrace upon any of these people while wearing the jersey. Like I said, you were in trouble even up to include, and including dismissal from the team. Now, even though I was just the manager, I still felt a great sense of pride. And every Friday morning when, we, when, we, when I'd go to school on a game day, I would make sure the shirt was, or the jersey was just as smoothed out as I could, tucked in properly, looked good. I took a lot of pride in wearing my school colors. Not just because Coach Smith said so, but because I really wanted to put forth the best image that I possibly could for him, my teammates, my school, and my town. I was making sure I represented myself, too, in the best way that I could. Because I was proclaiming that even though I wasn't a player, I was still part of the Philadelphia Tornado football team. And I wanted to do them proud. And to this day, if I'm wearing a, a shirt that has my high school's name on it, I feel a sense of obligation to represent them in the best way that I possibly can. But that story came to light as I was thinking about this sermon. Because I got this idea in my head of, of this, and I want to pose this to you. What if we wore our baptism? What if we wore Christ with the same type of diligence? What if we took the same amount of care in making sure that we were representing our discipleship and representing our Lord in the best possible way? What could that look like? What would it look like if we took seriously the words that he spoke to John that all of this should be done, as a lot of translations say, to fulfill all righteousness? What might it look like if we took seriously the notion that we become baptized, that when we become baptized, we are marked by God, not only as a sign of our outward sign of his grace, but also that we are marked for ministry?
What might that look like? Because yes, indeed, some of us are called to be set apart in pastoral ministry. But my friends, you don't all have to be a preacher or a pastor or whatever you want to call it to be in ministry because the reality is we all have a calling to some sort of ministry. If you want to look at it in the, in the proper term of it is the priesthood of all believers. We believe that we are all part of that. In other words, we all have a place. We all have a job. What might that look like if we took that seriously? What might it look like if we put aside all of our squabbles amongst our denominations and within our churches and among one another and we were simply striving to live as God's people? If we didn't major in the minors, if we didn't get lost in these long theological debates that preachers and laity alike like to engage in at times and yes, churches even split over some sort of difference in interpretation. What might it look like if we put all of that aside and instead we strove to be the kingdom? Part of baptismal vows made by the congregation when a child or an infant is baptized who can't make a profession of faith for themselves yet is that we will steer that child in all ways possible toward a faith in Christ for themselves. Because we believe that God's grace is at work in their lives even before they're aware of it. That, that word provenient grace that we hear about sometimes. What if we took that seriously? What if we took those vows seriously? How different might this church look? How much different might the United Methodist Church look? How much different might our communities and our neighborhoods, our state, and our countries, and in the whole world? How much different would those look? What might it look like if we never allowed the fire and the memory of our baptisms to fade? And even if we don't remember the exact moment we're baptized, just having the knowledge, not forgetting that we are baptized, could go a long way. What if we clung to that? What if we displayed the fire of a man named Delmar did in a movie? Has anyone ever seen, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's one of my favorite movies. And if you have seen the movie, especially if you've seen it as many times as I have, you're very familiar with this scene, so I'm sorry if I bore you, but if anyone here has not seen the movie or is not as familiar with this scene, I want to describe it to you. There is, a, in fact, a baptism scene in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Now, the movie itself is, is set in 1930s Mississippi, and it's loosely based on the Odyssey by Homer. But there's these three convicts named Pete, Delmar, and Everett who have escaped Parchman Farm. And they're on the run after this supposed treasure that Everett says he has. I won't spoil the ending if you haven't seen it, but let's just say things did not turn out the way they expected them to entirely. But in this particular scene, it starts off there in the woods and they're having a breakfast of roasted gopher over an open fire. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? But next thing they know is they're sitting there and they're just talking about their plans and, and waiting on the gopher to finish cooking. Uh, they, they see these people walking through and they're singing a song and they come to realize that this is a congregation on their way to, I don't know if it was a lake or a pond or whatever, but some sign of body of water there. 
and they were going down for a baptism service. And so Delmar goes down to get a closer look and he realizes what's going on and he goes down and has a few words with the preacher and he's dunked under the water. He comes out and there's Pete and Everett on the shore looking at him going, boy, what are you doing? And so Delmar comes up and he's all smiles out of that water and he declares to one and all, well, and I got to do it just like he did, so bear with me. Well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher's done washed away. And yes, it's important to have the R in there. The preacher has washed away all of my sins and transgressions. It's the straight and narrow from here on out, and heaven everlasting's my reward. Everett wants to know what in the world he's talking about and reminds him, as he put it, boy, we've got bigger fish to fry. And he says, the preachers that washed away all my sins, including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. <laughs> Everett reminds him that he claims that he has been innocent of that crime. And he thinks for a second, he says, well, I was lying, and that sin's been washed away too. Neither God nor man's got anything against me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. And then Pete runs down to get baptized and Everett's just still shaking his head, the ever-living ever stoic that he always was in the movie. But what if we clung to the same type of fire that Delmar and, and subsequently Pete had about their new faith and their baptism? That faith that Delmar showed that, that inspired Pete to go down into the waters for himself and to become part of the kingdom of God. What might happen if we showed that same fire and excitement over the fact that we ourselves are baptized? There's a lot of things that could happen, and this is kind of where the dangerous part of baptism comes in. It'll present us with tests, just like it did with Jesus in the wilderness. And we'll be challenged to stand arm in arm, maybe with people who we didn't expect to engage in ministries that take us to places we never imagined, to stand shoulder to shoulder with oppressed people just like Jesus stood in the gap with the marginalized of his time. And yes, and this is one of the most challenging things for me at times, having to put aside even my political convictions in order to do it because it's what Jesus would want. Remember, I never said any of this was going to be easy. And indeed, it is dangerous. It's dangerous to our pride, Dangerous to our beliefs that we've held all our lives, maybe. But it's still something we ought to at least think about. So I ask you, church, are you brave enough to accept this mission? Is this something you really want to engage in? Today is the day we remember when Jesus was baptized. We remember the results of his baptism, too. And today we remember our own baptisms and we reaffirm the covenant made at our baptism. And whether it was done on our behalf as children and later on we were confirmed or whatever, if you're ready to renew your commitment to keep the fire of your baptism alive and to accept any mission given to you, no matter how dangerous it is to your pride, well, if you are, I invite you to grab your hymnals and turn to page 50.